It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Jerome Blockland is founder of True Insights, a macro investment research platform. Having accumulated over 20 years of experience working in financial markets and asset management, Jerome struck out on his own to offer elite-level research to retail and institutional clients alike. Having headed up multi-asset at Rubico, a leading global asset manager with over 200 billion euros in AUM, Drone has significant experience building and managing portfolios and a time-tested track record in tactical asset allocation. We use True Insights' proprietary macro, sentiment and valuation investment framework to get under the hood of the global economy, assessing the odds of a looming recession and discussing how investors can under or overweight each asset class to navigate today's tumultuous market environment. Enjoy. I've got an intro question here uh, that won't necessarily flow chronologically, uh, but it will be a focus of of today's interview. So we'll get back to it um, before we circle back and cover your background and your philosophy. But let's open the podcast with the following question. We're a stock market focused podcast, uh, as you might be aware. So to open this conversation, I'd just like to ask why True Insights have just downgraded equities. Give Give us your brief outlook for equities at the moment. Yeah, so uh, basically we described a number of reasons that have aligned why we have uh, decided to reduce the weight of equities. The first one is if you look at the ISM manufacturing and other manufacturing PMIs, they have started to decline and a lot of indicators show that they will decline further and that means there is downside risk uh, to equities. Uh, A second reason is China. So uh, it is now estimated that... uh, 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 373 million people in 45 cities are either in full or partial lockdown. Uh, And of course, this will also impact supply chains, PMIs and the global uh, global GDP growth. Um, Next to that, if you look at um, the the war in Ukraine, it seems to be that the the political momentum uh, for a full embargo on Russian exports, so including uh, natural gas uh, and oil, is building. Yeah, that likely means another spike in energy prices and that almost surely causes a recession in, a recession in countries like, uh, like Germany. Um, at the same time, now we got inflation, uh, US inflation again yesterday. It's too early for central banks to adjust their forward guidance. They have to regain control of infl- inflation first and that means tighter monetary policy. Um, and two other indicators. First, we, we have a sentiment indicator that is called the Fear and Frenzy Index. Mm. It looks at uh, 11 different uh, sentiment indicators like the VIX, uh, like the call put ratio and so on. And that has uh, sneaked back into frenzy territory. And that means that uh, investors are too enthusiastic or, or too complacent, uh, if you will. And finally, uh, if you look at earnings, we think it will be very difficult for earnings to be as strong as they have been uh, since the the recovery uh, after the COVID uh, outbreak. 
And uh, yeah, we also see that in earnings revisions, uh, they have turned negative. And uh, I think uh, yeah, it will become more challenging uh, in general for companies uh, to, to match the expectations uh, of investors. Now, these things added together uh, made us decide to, to reduce the weight of equities. Yeah, great. That's a fantastic summary. And there's a few points I want to dig into later on in the conversation. But let's circle back now and, and introduce true insights to the listeners. Um, why then, uh, if we start with kind of your founding story, after 20 years in the asset management industry, did you decide to launch True Insights? Was there a eureka moment, perhaps? Well, a, a kind of. Eh? So, uh, so uh, a, a lot of people, uh, men of my age, eh? they uh, they have some kind of uh, midlife crisis. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't drive a fancy car, and I'm still happily married uh, to my wife. <laughs> uh, but of course. Uh, the, one of the best parts of my previous job at Robico, where I was the head of uh, uh, multi-asset, mm -hmm. was the interaction with clients and other investors. Eh? So the discussion about markets, learning new things all the time. Eh? It, it was a, a two-way uh, stream of information and also yeah, uh, helping uh, investors in general, e even uh, professional investors, eh, to, to create a better investment framework, an, an investment philosophy. Yeah, that was also always a, a, a big part of my job that I, I really, really liked. And uh, yeah, so, so, so for a couple of years, I've been thinking about this. Uh, could, could I do a little bit more with that? Mm. Yeah, and, and at some point also, given what happened with COVID, that you were already uh, sitting at home a lot. Yeah, at some point, the decision in my mind was made, okay, I'm going to try to, to what I have learned in those 20 years to share that uh, uh, with others. So yeah, Eureka, maybe that's a little bit, uh, but, but there was some kind of, uh, yes, I'm going to do this and, and, and why not now? Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's dig into the philosophy at True Insights then. Your website talks about a consistent structured investment approach. So why then is that uh, systematic approach so crucial to an investor's strategy in your opinion? Yeah, th this has something to do um, Every time, and, and again, I think current circumstances are an example of that, it feels a little bit different this time. But most of the time, it is not different. And uh, for example, we haven't had this kind of inflation in the last 40 years. Yeah. So it feels different by any means, of course. Eh? But to have any clue um, what to do with that and how to position for that, yeah, we can only look back at earlier periods of high inflation and try to learn from that. Another example, the yield curve has inverted again. And again, many investors believe that this time is different because now we have quantitative easing, massive uh, central bank balance sheets, ultra-low bond yields, uh, and so on and so on. But what you see is that uh, even though uh, history doesn't repeat, it often rhymes, one of the, 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 the sayings, but that isn't indeed the case. There's a lot of resemblance over time in diff different situations that in fact are basically uh, um, uh, like what we have seen before. And I think if you, if you can capture that, if you can use that historical data in your investment framework, then uh, it, it, it allows you um, uh, or it, 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 makes you, um, it makes it possible to not uh, get into this pitfall of, oh, this time is different uh, uh, um, uh, too, too easily. And, and that is also why I think you have to do this in a consistent and structured, and that's also what we put on the website, of course, a way to do it, eh? because then you make sure that you don't allow these feelings, th th this time is different, to overtake your investment decision process. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I completely agree. Um, and to dig into that philosophy further, I suppose, you've chosen a multi-asset approach. And obviously, that's your experience at Rubico, as you've already talked about. But, you know, you could have chosen an equity approach. You could have focused on fixed income or any other specific asset class. So why multi-asset? Yeah, well, multi-asset. So, so yes. First, this, this is my background. Huh? So, so this is also where my expertise is. At least that's what I like <laughs> to think. Um, but, but also in general, um, investing is about risk and uh, a return. Huh? So, so without taking risk, there is no return. Uh, but taking too much risk could also have uh, a result or a return that is unwanted. Huh? And a straightforward way uh, of Um, incorporating risk and return into your investment approach is by combining different asset classes. In this case, you can also steer the combination of risk and return to to those levels that that fit your investment objective. So so, uh, most investors uh, intrinsically or, or explicitly have a risk preference that lies somewhere between the least riskiest asset, cash, and the riskiest asset. Now, that used to be equities. I think now it's more like commodities or Bitcoin. Somewhere, for most people, there is some kind of uh, optimum. And the only way you can achieve that uh, is by combining different asset classes. So, therefore, multi-asset. And the other thing, which um, um, is, of course, well known, but I don't know if, if, if people take uh, enough advantage of that, eh, is that diversification remains the only way to improve your risk-return profile without, by definition, giving up on return. So why not eat the only free lunch that is out there Mm. in financial markets? And that is also, even if you have a very aggressive risk profile, it still pays off uh, uh, to have at least a little bit of diversification. So so that is why uh, multi-asset. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll dig into what's going on at True Insight in terms of asset allocation, where you're overweight, underweight right now in the current market. But just to dig further into your strategy now, I suppose, you overlay that fundamental philosophy with an investment framework, uh, the Macro Sentiment Valuation MSV framework. Can you just explain to the listeners how that works? Yes. Well, in a nutshell, it is that we do not only look at uh, traditional macroeconomic indicators, but also uh, uh, at other indicators that have some kind of that bring some kind of information about where GDP growth is going, or even more importantly, uh, where markets are going. Mm. So it's my impression many investors focus too much on these traditional economic data like GDP growth or or on macro variables in general. Uh, but but markets uh, move on a lot of uh, forward-looking indicators, and and it is the the general idea is to grasp. Uh, those uh, indicators. When you try to do that, you will see that this this is not only about uh, yeah what we call uh, macro. Eh? So macro makes nice stories and uh, a lot of these. Eh? So for example, the ISM manufacturing is a forward-looking macro indicator that is uh, of a big importance. Uh, but a lot of other indicators um, are yeah either neglected or or don't get enough attention. Eh? So. Market momentum, so where are markets moving? This has forecasting power for what will happen in the next couple of months. Market sentiment, how are investors positioned or where are they sending their money to, to which asset classes? And also valuation. Things can be very bright from a macroeconomic perspective, but if valuation is sky high, 
yeah, there's, there's still a big chance that you will get a disappointed return out of equity uh, uh, markets. And, and on top of that, even when investors focus on valuation uh, measures, most of the time it's on standalone uh, measures like the, the, the PE ratio. But in, in a multi-asset world, um, uh, it also uh, is, is, is of importance to look at relative valuation measures, uh, like earnings yield versus spreads, for example. Now, and I think it, if, you, if you are able to find those indicators from these three uh, buckets, uh, macro sentiment and valuation, this strengthens your investment framework. And it also reduces the odds that you think that some, something should be important, but you are missing, completely missing uh, that markets are driven by sentiment or valuation or, or some other indicator that is not uh, inside this, this macro uh, bucket. And so so that, is, that is the general idea. The, it, it, the world is bigger than uh, just macro. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, that systematic approach is obviously very important. But I guess also important, I suppose, is to capitalize on uh, tactical opportunities, maybe shorter term opportunities that wouldn't be there if you did have a proper sort of rigid structure that only allowed for long term conviction. And I just wondered how you balance that risk return kind of opportunity. Does the framework allow for you to capitalize on short term tactical opportunities? Is it that flexible? Yeah, it is. So we use um, yeah, longer term market data, but also we look at the actual uh, market capitalization of different asset classes uh, to get an idea of the long term strategic mix. Then we look at the, the details and the main characteristics, risk, return, uh, diversification benefit, things like that. But, but then, since markets are obviously not moving in a straight line, mm. we have put together this macro sentiment and valuation framework. And what this framework does is, okay, when markets start to deviate on either uh, one of them, macro sentiment and valuation or all of them, it should give a signal, okay, so this asset class, uh, the outlook uh, has deteriorated for this and this and this reason. Hence, it means yeah, we should lower this asset, uh, asset class uh, at the expense of some other asset class. And, and this is basically the, the whole uh, macro sentiment valuation framework is to, is to uh, capitalize on these yeah, uh, temporary deviations from this long-term uh, trend in these, uh, in these asset classes. So that, that is also what we try to do. We build uh, what I think well diversified portfolios, but then we know uh, the world is not constant and we try to capitalize on that where possible. And it does, doesn't mean you have to get all uh, uh, trends in markets right, but if no. you add a little bit of value over time by implying this, this framework, yeah, that, then, then I'm already satisfied. Yeah, fantastic. Well, finally, for this section then, to what extent are your global ETF-based portfolios are a manifestation, a reflection of this approach. Can you outline the range of those ETF-based portfolios for us? Yeah. So, you know, I, I write investment research and, and uh, they uh, all come down to uh, having uh, views on markets and asset classes and so on. So, so it, an ETF-based multi-asset portfolio is, is for us a very straightforward way to say, okay, this is how we put our money where our mouth is. So, so it, it is a very um, a tangible way of um, um, transforming our views uh, from the framework into actual investments or investments decisions. Now, we choose, uh, we choose 
uh, ETFs because what we want to do is that we have views on asset classes. So uh, most of the time we want to have a beta one, as it is called, uh, a product or, or investment had to cover our, our uh, view. They're also pretty straightforward and cost efficient uh, a way to implement uh, uh, our uh, views. Uh, what we do add is that where possible, we focus on ETFs that incorporate uh, some kind of sustainability framework. And this means favoring companies that do relatively well on ESG measures. Um, uh, and next to that, um, we also, um, uh, we do not want to have exposure to just one of these bigger providers. Uh, we focus for most of the time on, on the, on the well-known names in the ETF universe, uh, but we have also um, uh, distributed our investment across a number of these um, um, uh, ETF providers. And if you look at some of our names, uh, you will see these are the, the, the usual suspects. Uh, what for us is important is that it gives a straightforward way, uh, uh, exposure to the asset class that we want to have in the portfolio or to reflect our views in terms of under and over uh, uh, weights. And the last thing is that we do add a couple of specific ETFs that focus on, on so-called secular investment trends. I think about uh, future mobility, uh, blockchain, healthcare innovation. Um, mm. And, and we, we do not do any tactical asset allocation around that uh, because yeah, th this is we believe these in the long uh, run, they will add a, a, a value. Uh, but that is basically uh, uh, the only addition that we have on top of the asset class ETFs that we use uh, for the uh, portfolios. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of your exposure to those secular trends. That's something that we cover a lot on Opto, that sort of disruptive innovation, those secular trends that won't necessarily run in line with market cycles. So that's interesting as well. Glad we got a bit of information on that. Um, so with your kind of approach and your philosophy outlined there. I wanted to move on to current markets and hopefully set the scene for our discussion about where you're allocating at the moment. Yesterday, US inflation hit a 41-year high, rising to 8.5%. Uh, CPI is at 7% in the UK now too. Yep. Uh, and I spoke to Julian Brigden uh, on the previous episode of our Opto Sessions podcast. Uh, he's the founder of Macro uh, Intelligence 2 Partners, uh, a research firm based out in the US. Uh, and he believed the economy could run hotter still. But what's your short to medium term inflation outlook? Yeah, so there's a big difference between uh, short term and medium term. Uh, so for me, medium term is, is, is somewhere around 12 to 18 months. Uh, and uh, I will come to that in a minute. Uh, so in the short term, I don't think it, it's a real surprise uh, that inflation will remain high. We can have discussions if we have seen the peak. I don't think that is really that important if you look at where sentiment, uh, consumer sentiment is or what the Federal Reserve is aiming to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, also the latest numbers, uh, they showed infl inflation is very broad uh, based. And that on its own means uh, it will take longer uh, before things will come down. Huh? So uh, next to that, energy prices yeah, remain elevated and of course could spike further uh, because of the war in Ukraine, huh? especially as I mentioned. Uh, at the beginning uh, uh, of the of the uh, interview, had the, the political momentum for an embargo on all Russian exports, including oil, uh, seems to be building. And yeah, most likely this will lead to another increase in energy prices. And of course, this will in the short term keep um, inflation high. Second thing is, and that and that is, I think, a new factor or a growing uh, factor 
uh, in the inflation outlook. And that is the new lockdowns in China. And that means that we will have another run of supply chain disruptions or issues, whatever you want to call it, on top of that some of the original uh, supply chain disruption, and I, I think you should say destruction, uh, has never been solved in the first place. Uh, mm. uh, if you Also, if you look at... Um, uh, things like port uh, congestion in Shanghai. Yeah, there are now uh, more than 300 vessels waiting to be loaded or discharged. That is uh, more than three times uh, the number uh, in, in normal times. Uh, so, so that means at some point there will be new pressures uh, on, on, um, on prices in the short term. Uh, so short term, high. I don't know if it's going to higher or stay high or come down a little bit, but yeah, in general, high. If you then move over to the medium term, and, and I think, again, this could lead to some interesting surprises. Um, if, you, if, you, if you look at the next 12 to 18 months, yeah, inflation could come down sharply, at least uh, temporary. And uh, mm. there are two uh, main reasons. The first is, uh, is the impact of base effects. And so central banks and thus investors have opted to, to look at a year-on-year change of some aggregate price level and then say this is inflation uh, and that means by definition if you look at a year-on-year change that inflation is transitory you cannot use that word anymore but it is in fact uh, a transitory now and if if you look at for example energy uh, so there's a there's a, a relatively strong correlation positive correlation between the price of oil and headline inflation now if you assume that the price of crude oil stays at 100 uh, dollars for the next 12 months, then you will see that uh, the year-on-year change in oil prices will go down and even at some point turn negative. Now, if you believe that the correlation between headline inflation and energy prices holds, at least to some extent, then you will see that oil will start to push down inflation as early as May or June already if we stay at these levels. But even if oil uh, would uh, uh, re-rise again to 120 or 180, $30, still base effects, year-on-year effects, will drag inflation uh, uh, down. Now, add to that that we are heading, we are already in an economic slowdown, but yes, we could see another U.S. recession, and um, yeah, inflation could actually collapse quite uh, dramatically, uh, especially in the case if we do get that recession, eh, because what is one of the most effective ways uh, to push down inflation, that is if you, if you lower demand, if you kill demand. If this happens, and, and I think we are already uh, on the way to at least a, a significant slowdown, but perhaps a recession, yeah, these two things will align later in the year. And that could mean that e- temporarily inflation could actually uh, uh, fall below the 2% for a, a little while. Uh, before it then uh, turns up a little bit again. And th- this will be interesting because nobody is talking about that uh, uh, for now. But in 12 to 18 months, inflation could temporarily, I should add that, but be much, much lower than is now expected. Uh, so, th- so that is the interesting part. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've not heard too many people talk about that. And that is interesting. And I think we'll, we'll c- cover recession in a second. Um, but if we move back to the short term, just very briefly, you know, right now, as we've already discussed, Corin headline inflation is up. And we've seen the US dollar index top 100 again. I think you pointed that out on social media yesterday. So what options are available to the Fed right now? Or is there only one option? Yeah, basically, there's only one option. Uh, um, and the interesting thing is that even that option is only partially effective. 
to, 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 to yeah. force inflation to come down, you have to tighten financial conditions and in the end hurt demand. Because at, at these levels, uh, at above 8%, there's little else you can do if you want to rein in inflation at some point. Uh, but, but yeah, the thing is that at least some of this inflation is caused by exogenic factors like the war in Ukraine. And that means that the effectiveness of tightening, Federal Reserve tightening, is less uh, uh, than normal or less than average. And this could then mean that in the short term, as you mentioned indeed, uh, the Fed has to come through aggressively because it has to compensate for these other factors it cannot impact directly uh, in order to get inflation to stop rising or, or, or even better to come down. And so, so, so it's a bit of an awkward situation for, for many central banks that they have to do something that will hurt demand, even though they know that it is only partially uh, effective. But yeah, in the short term, they can only do one thing, and that is uh, raise interest rate and reduce the balance sheet. They will do so. So these 50 basis point uh, um, expectations that are now in the markets, yeah, at least for the next two meetings, I expect they will raise with, with 50 yeah. basis points. Uh, and, and, and this is basically the only thing that they can do to uh, tighten these financial conditions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and to move then to recession, as you briefly just discussed, you know, consumers' fundamental purchasing power is, is rapidly decreasing. And that's despite the salary increases that we've seen both, you know, in the US and the UK, for example. So you talked about recession being a possibility, but how likely is it um, if we if we you know tackle the US specifically? What you know what are the odds of a US recession? Yeah. yeah so so I would put the odds of a US recession at above fifty percent. So I think it's difficult to say if that is seventy or sixty, but but above fifty percent. And uh, we we keep track of this uh, US recession scoreboard, and there you have uh, three main drivers. The yield curve, ISM manufacturing, and Federal Reserve uh, policy. Now, if you look at the yield curve, that is at an interesting point now, huh, because the, the 10-year, two-year yield curve has already uh, uh, inverted. And um, yeah, each of the last six recessions going back to the 1980s, uh, it, this has happened. Huh? So, so one of the yield curves, traditional yield curves, because a lot of investors now look at all kinds of different uh, uh, yield curves, but has inverted. The other traditional yield curve, the 10-year, three-month yield curve, has not inverted yet. Mm -hmm. So technically, you are stuck in the middle, um, and, and that should lower, that should keep you from estimating, uh, of putting the odds of a recession at 100%. We have to take into account that uh, every time, with the exception of the COVID uh, recession, um, The 10-year, two-year yield curve inverted first, and then the 10-year, three-month year. So, so if you look at the traditional yield curves, we are still on the path to um, uh, a recession. Now, if you look at the two other uh, uh, important indicators, the ISM manufacturing, now it is at uh, 57. So if you look at only at the number, then you will say that the likelihood of a recession from this angle is, is relatively small. But as I mentioned at the, at the start, if you look at some forward-looking indicators, then it is very likely that the ISM could move towards 50. Then again, 50 is not necessarily a recession. So, so this lowers the odds of a recession a little bit. And then you have a Federal Reserve policy. Two things. First, the amount of rate hikes 
that is now priced in. And also, if you look at, uh, if you look at the rhetoric of, of many FOMC members, it will be quite aggressive. Also, the, the reduction of the balance sheet will also be more aggressive than we have seen in previous uh, uh, phases of uh, quantitative uh, uh, tightening. But we have to take into account that even if you lift uh, the, the Fed target rate by, by 2% uh, in the coming uh, uh, FOMC meetings, then real yields, the, the real target uh, rate is still negative. And historically, you have seen that a recession most of the time happened when these uh, 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 when the Fed target rate, uh, the real Fed target rate, became positive. So we are not, not there yet. And this is a reason to not uh, put these odds of a recession at 100 or very close to 100%, but to, to, to uh, uh, lower it a little bit. But still, I think if the only option were yes or no, I would say yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and if it is going to happen or if it's likely to happen, how protracted do you think that US recession could be? How long do you think it might last? Yeah, this is perhaps the most interesting question. So so I don't think that the Federal Reserve will make it this year to the around nine rate hikes that are priced in. I, because I think that the slowing of GDP growth, the, the, the turn of economic momentum will later in the year uh, allow the Fed to still keep on a tightening path, but take it easier. So, so the pace of increases uh, uh, will go down. And I think if they do that, so that is my assumption, of course, that opens the door that even if the yield curve is right and we will get a recession, because the Fed has already uh, yeah, become a little bit less hawkish, that this recession could be relatively uh, uh, shallow. I also think that um, central banks will be inclined to turn to the uh, usual instruments they have been using ever since the great financial crisis, and that is balance sheets and lower yields, uh, quite uh, uh, quickly. Also because uh, low bond yields help this whole debt sustainability uh, uh, model that, that, we, that we focus on, right? So, so I don't think it has to be a very severe recession. Um, if I'm wrong and the Fed uh, goes on in 2023 with uh, rate hikes too far above what we think is the neutral level, then of course uh, it can be more protracted. But, but I don't think that they will do that. And my base case is that at some point in, in, in the later stages of this year, the Fed will say, okay, we have done uh, a quite aggressive tightening now. And by what we are seeing now, what is happening to demand, and also because inflation could turn, uh, come down uh, pretty significantly, they will moderate the pace of uh, uh, tightening. That is my idea. Yeah, okay, interesting. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Well, having set then the economic context, let's move on to what that means for equity markets. We're a stock market-focused publication, as I mentioned at the start. Let's start with a fairly open question. Has the economic cycle now advanced to the point that valuations are finally starting to matter again, matter in inverted commas, having risen to nosebleed altitudes relative to cash flows? What's your take on that? Well, the question then is, of course, are we late cycle or are we still... Uh, mid-cycle. Eh? So if we don't get a recession and, and the Fed manages to, to orchestrate a soft landing, then, then I don't think that this question is as relevant 
uh, as as it is if we are a late uh, cycle. So so assuming that we are late cycle, I I think that that is that is the better uh, option here. Yes, then you are in a phase where normally. The earnings growth is the factor that drives uh, uh, equity market performance. Um, and it depends then what your starting valuation is, or how much of return you could expect. Eh? So, so yes, I do think that at this point in the cycle, uh, the, the combination of earnings growth versus valuation, which in the US is still fairly high, uh, is of importance. And, and I also think this, this brings downside risk if we indeed get this uh, uh, recession in, in 12 to 18 months from now. Yeah, interesting. Well, that inspires the question about bonds then. Let's go on a brief tangent. You know, the S&P 500 has dropped in six of the last seven days, but the yields on the 10-year Treasury note broke a streak of seven straight increases, retreating from a three-year high. So from a valuation perspective then, is this an inflection point as it might be for equities? Is it an inflection point for fixed income as well? Yes. So so we are overweight uh, uh, developed market uh, uh, treasuries, including US treasuries, uh, which means that that I believe that bond yields, at least longer term bond yields, uh, should come down. Uh, but I have to say, uh, I was a bit too early. Uh, I, I already think that uh, 275 is relatively high if you see what uh, um, the Fed is planning to do at the short end and the fact that we are moving into an economic slowdown. So, so my my general idea is that that in the next couple of months, uh, when tapering actually starts, uh, we have seen this before that uh, bond yields will come down. Uh, also, because inflation comes down, but uh, more importantly, because GDP growth comes uh, comes down. Um, so, yeah, my idea is uh, uh, bond yields will be lower uh, in a couple of months uh, from now. Interesting. Okay, so well, it does seem then up until this point, at least that relentless climb in bond yields is is finally beginning to bite. I mean, with the cost of borrowing to refinance maturing debt climbing to the highest point since 2009, you know, margins are already under pressure, um, both from that and from the surge in commodity prices that we've already discussed, the impact of the supply uh, chain crisis, again, that we've discussed. So where does that leave your short term outlook for equities? If we begin there, and then we can move on to your outlook uh, in the medium term. Yeah, short term, underweight, uh, not by a whole lot, but underweight, um, and yeah, that has to do uh, with the uh, alignment of these couple of things: a slower economic momentum, China supply chain issues, uh, and, and indeed, um, uh, coming back to the introduction of this question here, earnings growth. Yeah, while positive, at least for the next two quarters, will become more challenging to keep that up. Also, uh, uh, yes, commodity prices are a factor here. Yes, uh, interest rates are a factor here, even though interest rate, it will take a little bit more time because uh, of refinancings and things like that. Uh, but wages, wages are uh, nominal wages, at least, are rising uh, yeah, pretty swiftly. And, and for most companies, wages are the biggest uh, cost component. So on the medium-term outlook, um, I'm a little bit more positive. And uh, one um, mm. uh, interesting factor is uh, if you look at the equity risk premium in, in most areas, um, uh, that is relatively high. Uh, if you look, for example, in Europe, where bond yields are still very, very low, and uh, the valuation is, 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 uh, of equities is much lower than, for example, in the US. 
um, you see that this equity risk premium is yeah, rather large. Huh? So over the medium and longer term, uh, this equity risk premium is an important factor uh, for um, uh, uh, performance, a relative performance mm-hmm. as well. Uh, of course, we do have this potential recession that comes in between. Huh? So what you have often seen is that equities tend to do relatively well right up until the recession. Then they crash, go down significantly, uh, 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 things are reset, and then we begin a new cycle. And that is also uh, most of the time a very good uh, entry point for equities. Yeah? So um, this whole medium long-term uh, outlook of uh, um, uh, for equities is also built on some of these uh, uh, longer-term uh, uh, measures like the equity mm-hmm. risk premium. But we do have to take into account that the, the odds of a recession, uh, for example, in Germany, I think it will be really difficult to escape a recession. Yeah, most of the time, this means that uh, on on the way to there, there is a bit of a hiccup. And uh, yeah, it it is my job to try to catch that uh, uh, and to be sure to be underweight uh, before that. But over the medium uh, long term, equities do not uh, really look look pretty attractive relative to other asset classes. Got it. Okay, great. So with those outlooks in mind, though, and obviously we've got earnings season coming up, who are likely to be the biggest winners? What sorts of companies from what industries and sectors? Um, yeah, generally, most likely companies that uh, are able to deal with these rising costs, wages, commodity prices, energy prices, electricity prices, uh, 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 things like that. Eh? So I think um, companies that have um, a pricing power uh, will do relatively well. Um, next to that, uh, I also think that after yeah, being disliked by many investors, uh, because commodity prices uh, were always going down. Uh, it, 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 it seems likely with, with the spikes in, in, in every commodity price uh, uh, almost, uh, that these companies will have first uh, bumper earnings, but also that their outlooks uh, 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 can be raised quite significantly. And this is, of course, what investors always like uh, when companies raise their guidance. Uh, so I also think that mm-hmm. companies that are able to raise their guidance, and I think in the resource uh, sectors, uh, there, there could be a, a quite a bit, a, bit, a number of these, these firms or companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes, pricing power and, and also uh, areas where there is growth, like in the resource uh, sectors. Uh, that that would be my idea of, of of the winners, and of course the losers is is the other way around. If if you if you have as a company start to have trouble with higher rates, uh, with finding the right people, uh, with higher commodity prices, uh, with higher electricity prices, which should not be underestimated, especially in Europe, a lot of companies uh, are, are are grappling with this with this massive rise in electricity prices, and they, and they have to postpone. Uh, productions in some areas. Now, I think in those areas, companies that are hit by those factors, I, I would expect that the, the losers uh, are are in those uh, segments. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, completely understand. So with that in mind, then we've covered equity markets, but from an asset allocation perspective, where are True Insight most overweight right now? Which asset class? And if you could explain the investment case for that asset class, that would be great. We are overweight in uh, uh, real assets. Um, and that means that we are overweight in uh, uh, commodities and we are overweight in uh, inflation-linked bonds. And we have been for quite some time. Uh, and just recently, have we have added uh, an overweight in developed market treasuries. 
as mentioned, because we think that GDP growth will come down significantly. And most of the time, that means lower long-term bond yields and not higher. Um, so these are our overweights. And um, yeah, they stack up against underweights for most risky assets. So high-yield bonds, um, emerging market treasuries, uh, equities, as we have just uh, discussed. Yeah, so so um, we are relatively cautious, uh, have a cautious positioning. Um, uh, but yeah, we think that the, the repricing of real asset, as, especially over the medium term, uh, yeah, has, has further to go. Yeah, so, so you see that in a lot of multi-asset portfolios, real assets are, are either non-existent or have a very, very low weight. Uh, but we think that, that also from a somewhat longer horizon, um, investors should at least add a, a little bit of commodities, gold, uh, uh, um, inflation-linked bonds, real estate, Bitcoin. These kind of asset classes should be uh, uh, not underweight, at least, going forward. Mm, yeah, and on commodities then, you know, the, the prices are, are high for the reasons that we've already discussed. Um, but I, I saw it argued, uh, I was reading a Bloomberg article before the call today, you know, central banks' attempts to actually quell inflation are perhaps likely to exacerbate the commodity market stress or volatility that that we are seeing at the moment, despite the high prices. So with Russia-Ukraine, the volatility that comes with a conflict like that, is there any nervousness or bearishness towards commodities in the medium term or even the long term once we've got through this period of, of, of high prices due to the supply stress? Yeah, again, this is about base effects. Yeah? So, so you, you cannot expect that what we are seeing now uh, in oil prices and natural gas prices, especially again in Europe, this will continue. Yeah? So at some point, for example, if there is a ceasefire or a peace in Ukraine, yeah, most likely a, a big risk premium will, will flow out of uh, a commodity uh, uh, prices. If you add a recession to that, uh, when demand for among others, commodities uh, sinks, then of course these are the big uh, um, yeah, uh, vulnerabilities or risks to an, uh, a positioning in commodities. If you look at the somewhat longer horizon, there you see that uh, if you look at yeah, l- l- simple the, the value of commodities relative to uh, uh, bonds and equities. It's not just equities, but also relative to bonds, which also, of course, in the last 40 years or so have had a tremendous run. You see that their value uh, is relatively low, even though if you see what is happening with the Green Revolution, uh, the building of uh, new uh, supply chains, as I expect, because yeah, what has happened now in Europe when, when countries are completely dependent on, on natural gas from, from one party that then uh, yeah, basically invades another country, you will see policy makers will make a push for creating their own safe or perceived safe uh, supply chains. And, and all of these things uh, added together, I think, over the, over the longer term, the, the relative value, the value of commodities uh, uh, will be higher in the economy and also uh, uh, within multi-asset uh, portfolios. So, so yes, I, clearly I see risk for whenever this war is over and let's hope that it's soon. And of course, uh, also if you get a recession, uh, but, but for the longer run, I, I do think that the, the the allocation towards real assets, including commodities, yeah, should, should not be underestimated uh, because of these longer-term uh, uh, trends. Uh, I think you referenced a, a few 
you know, traditional sort of safe haven assets, I suppose, if we want to use that term. You mentioned precious metals, I think. You mentioned digital assets, crypto, et cetera. Is now the time to get into those safe havens at the moment? And uh, as a follow-up question, I'd be interested to know how you see digital assets or crypto, if we take that one in particular, versus traditional safe havens like gold. Do you see one as equally good uh, in terms of its safe haven status or is one actually superior uh, in that respect? But first of all, precious metals, are you relatively bullish in, in that area of the market? Uh, yes, uh, happy because again, a lot of people, a lot of investors do not uh, invest in gold mm. at all. Yeah, so so this, this means uh, they have no exposure to real assets. And uh, yeah, I don't think that this is, this is a, a good idea yeah, because um, what we did, uh, so basically in a nutshell, why we are overweight also from a structural uh, uh, perspective on these real assets is because let's say for the next 10 or 20 years, I think a couple of things uh, could happen. It could happen uh, first, uh, somewhat structurally higher inflation. Uh, why? Because it helps uh, to maintain uh, debt sustainability. Uh, the second is uh, this, this has to be combined with uh, a low bond yields um, because, again, this helps debt sustainability. Huh? So we, we have a growth model that is built around debt. Huh? So we, we buy GDP growth by issuing debt. And th this can only stay this way if debt sustainability is not an issue. Now, we can, of course, stop issuing debt, but then we don't have GDP growth. I don't think a lot of investors, policymakers, whatever, uh, whomever, uh, would really like that. So a way that has uh, least resistance is a combination of ha somewhat higher inflation, but still anchored, of course, uh, and, and low bond yields. So, so I think structurally higher inflation and low or negative real yields, and that combined uh, with the general notion that the US dollar, uh, the weight uh, of the US dollar in global uh, FX reserves will decline. This does not mean that I, I think that we are at the end of the US dollar being a global accepted uh, FX reserve currency. It is not, but, but it's over, it is overvalued. It is the, the weight uh, of the US dollar in these reserve is too big. Eh? It's, it's, it's around 60%. But if you look at global trade, the dollar is uh, 35%. So I think there also will be a diversification uh, 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 from that angle. Now, if you add these three things to, together, then you will see that gold, uh, let's keep it first at these uh, precious metals, Gold ticks a lot of these boxes. And so uh, the correlation between uh, real yields uh, and uh, gold is all, almost minus one. And so when the uh, real yields goes down, gold goes up. Uh, diversification away from the dollar into other uh, currency reserves or reserves. Gold is, of course, with its long history, one of the obvious candidates. Mm -hmm. so, so, so from that perspective, I think that gold uh, and precious metals, but in this case gold, um, yeah, it's, it's relative attractiveness compared to, let's say, uh, the last uh, 10, 20 years uh, has actually uh, uh, increased. And, and this is uh, why we say at least have some gold uh, added to your portfolio. You don't have to put 50% of that. If you're a strong believer, you can do that, of course, but then you lose diversification benefits. But at least make sure that, that you are invested uh, in asset classes that fit these three boxes. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Well, then... Uh, how do how do digital assets or cryptos more specifically enter that narrative? Can can they be seen as as a safe haven, and is is that a place that people should be looking for, or at least to hedge equity risk? I suppose. Yeah. Now it it, it has to do in, in fact with 
equity risk. So, so um, as, as I mentioned, uh, I'm not that negative about equities uh, in the longer run because the, the premium that you get on top of, let's say, bonds is still sizable. But I do think that um, if you look at digital currencies, but for me, that is, first of all, that is, that is Bitcoin. Uh, you see that it, it, it shares some of the characteristics of gold. Um, and also, it represents a value in the same sense that uh, gold does, or at least you can theoretically uh, uh, substantiate that. Eh? Mm-hmm. So, so if you look at the gold to silver ratio, uh, and you look at how much is actually uh, around, uh, then gold is, is much more valuable than silver. And this, this, for me at least, has to do with this long history history of being a safe haven, uh, being money for a very long time. And so there is this, there is this insurance value uh, against uh, inflation, against fiat currency debasement uh, that is represented uh, in gold. And, and, and I think that uh, Bitcoin and perhaps a, a number of other cryptocurrencies uh, have the potential, have the potential to also um, reflect uh, or, or gain a little bit of that total insurance value. We don't know by how much, uh, but at least I think in, in that area, it will become a bigger asset class. And therefore, we have also uh, added it. Of course, uh, you mentioned volatility and safe haven with a realized volatility of 70%, which is uh, five times higher for equities, four to five times higher than for equities. Uh, it, it does require a, a bit of portfolio construction yeah. if you want to add uh, Bitcoin. And it also depends, of course, on your risk uh, tolerance, but but yes, we see Bitcoin um, as an alternative uh, uh, to gold in this whole insurance value against inflation, against uh, fiat currency debasement, against uh, di- further diversification of uh, global FX reserves, uh, and, and therefore uh, also if you look at network effects and, and things like that, we th- also think it's a good idea to have some exposure to these asset classes or this asset class if you take digital assets as one asset class. Mm. Okay, sure. Really interesting. Okay, well then, and it's, it's possibly a question I should have asked earlier because I think you referenced cash earlier, but you know we've got a lot of retail investors listening in and I guess one question that will be top of their mind is should just across the board I remain invested you know how much cash should I have if at all in my portfolio at the moment what what would your take be on that specifically for retail yeah so so the key thing as an investor doesn't matter if you're an individual investor or an institutional investor if I hold cash and inflation is eight percent then you know what you are going to lose And if you look at things like spending power, uh, you you see this actually happening in the real world. You know what you will lose on a year basis, two-year basis, whatever. Uh, So once you hold cash, you have to accept that you uh, get nothing uh, in return. And in the end, your money will be less worth. You can buy less goods, services, uh, equities, bitcoins with it than uh, before. The only thing uh, the only time when that um, is opportune to do when that uh, is when you expect that uh, the, the, the total result of, t- of the rest of your portfolio uh, will be even worse. Now, and I think in a multi-asset world, uh, we cover up to 11 asset classes. Most of the time, there is an asset class, not always, but most of the time, there is an asset class uh, uh, for which the outlook uh, is better than for cash. And still, that can mean even if you want to apply 
tactical asset allocation views and you have to free up risk to go overweight equities, uh, for example, cash could play its part. But in general, if you want to say, and, and that, that was my understanding of your, of your question, should I be structurally overweight uh, uh, in cash? I would say most of the time, no, unless you have a very downbeat view of the world and on markets going forward. Huh? So if you have that cash to invest, most of the time, it's better to actually put it to work. Uh, the thing, of course, is to put it to work in the right asset classes. Yeah, but that is where I come in. But <laughs> so, no, no, a, a structural overweight in cash, I would not opt for that. Yeah, perfect. And that's exactly the question I was asking. And a nice message to end the main body of the interview on, I think. Um, so now we've got a quick fire question round. So um, this is, as we discussed before the call, a more generic list of questions. So it's the same for every guest. And feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. The first question. What do you think the most frequent mistake investors make is? Um, My idea about this question is that a lot of people understandably are focused on uh, realizing return and it has to be high or solid or or whatever. Uh, But in fact, they are focused on making the right decisions in buying the best equities, the best asset classes and so on. But in practice, if you are able to make sure that you avoid being invested in the losers, the the Mm. equities that go bankrupt, the asset classes that have no future, then already you have won half of the battle. Because if you can do that systematically, uh, you don't have to pick out the best equity, the best company, the best asset class, the best whatever. By assuring that you don't end up by the worst investment, you are already outperforming. And I think a lot of people, uh, investors, do not pay enough attention to this uh, given, to this uh, general notion of investing. Yeah, I think you're completely right. Yeah, really solid advice. Okay, question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Oh, you know, there's no no one answer for that. (laughs) So I'm very active on Twitter. I get a lot of uh, solid information. Of course, there's also less solid information, but a lot of solid information from my Twitter companions who I follow. They are quick. They have knowledge. Uh, they give additional insights. Of course, I have uh, yeah, one of the you know, most well-known financial systems at which I'm looking at, uh, Bloomberg. So I get a lot of my information from there. Uh, and of course, there are uh, uh, yeah, some, some websites or, or things like that that I read. But yeah, to say that one is more important than the other, it's just like my investment framework. I like to add all these things together and then come up with something that, that helps me uh, determine a view or construct a view. So that is basically uh, how I work. I get information as much uh, from as many sources as possible. And then it's uh, to me to translate that into a portfolio decision. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, question three then. What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? Is there one moment that particularly sticks in your mind? It could be positive or it could be negative. Oh, difficult, difficult. There, there are so many moments that you uh, think, I, I should have done this differently or I should have done this earlier. Yeah, but uh, mm. I think uh, that was a couple of years ago. There was another episode when the German 10-year Bund yield also increased by more than a percent in a couple of weeks. And uh, um, yes, I I can remember that was at that time I was a little bit younger and also with my colleagues that we really pressed our bosses 
to 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 <laughs> make this trade and uh, and and it finally worked. So so that was a memorable moment in in the sense that this was perhaps the first uh, time that you could show some authority on, on matters and and things like uh, and things like that. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, maybe also a couple of times when markets are really going down like 20%, 30%. At some point, you have to uh, have the guts. There's really the guts to go in. And, and that also, if, if that turns out uh, to be the, the right moment, that is also, uh, so, uh, these are, that are nice feelings. But, but I don't have a particular moment that I say, oh, this is a career-changing life event uh, moment. No, no, no. No, no. No, that's fantastic. That's exactly the sort of thing we were looking for. And often the negative experiences can live longer in the memory than the positive one. So it's good to get a couple of positives as well. Um, our penultimate question then is, again, I guess, reflecting on your career history today, if you could go back in time, is there one bit of advice you would give to your younger self? Um, oh, yeah. So difficult questions at the end. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, endurance. Yeah, so so yep. um uh, if 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 I look at my history of uh, decisions, I'm pretty happy with them. But but I have a tendency to end a view or change my portfolio, and that is if also for my personal portfolio uh, containing some individual stocks, I have a tendency to go out too early. Yeah, so so of course that this this is a good thing because you you, you never overdo it and then and then uh, market sink or or uh, mm. whatever. But but if I could have done better uh, if if I had a little bit more patience to say okay I am right but there's no reason that I should be wrong I'm sticking with it and I think that uh, so if you have really have great conviction then stay a little bit longer than than you feel is necessary uh, th- that would be my tip yeah absolutely and one we've heard before as well so you're not alone uh, in that ah uh, then I take it back. <laughs> 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 um, our, our final question then is, uh, and this is sort of the opto question. So we aim to speak to people that are trying to outperform benchmark returns. They're doing something a bit different in terms of their investment strategy. And we ask them, what is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? Investment framework. Perfect. If you don't have the framework, you do things differently every time. So it's either luck or you have a great sense of markets. Some people have that. They have a very good sense of where markets are going. But I think if you want to call it a source of alpha, this is structural, then it all comes down finding the right investment framework. Fantastic. And we've ended where we started. So I think that's the perfect point to, to finish the interview. So that just leaves me to say thank you very much, Jerome, for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. Okay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.